0: Jack Taylor, 25, single and a young man with plans.
1: Jack had a lot of confidence and he knew what he wanted to do in life and he went out there and done it.
0: After midnight, Jack left this club and decided to do something he may never have done before.
2: Make a date with a man. Within 36 hours of this meeting, in the early hours of the morning, Jack Taylor was found dead.
3: Knew something had happened to Jack, and we just didn't know where to start.
0: Jack had been murdered by Stephen Port. He told the truth, Stephen. I'm telling you the truth, yes. He was lying. He'd already killed four times.
4: People started turning up dead.
0: It's just a sexual
5: predator in every which way. Unfortunately, it resulted in the, the deaths of four
0: men. How to catch and convict the predator serial killer. As detectives piece together the evidence, they form a picture of a suspect. Which part of the puzzle will reveal Stephen Port? What would be the killer's mistake?
3: Stephen Port, I don't really like saying his name to be completely honest with you. He's ruined our lives. He's ruined our family. He's took our jack away.
6: should die that I way i've never seen anything that horrific one of the duties of a pathologist is to determine the cause of death
7: watch on mobile devices or the big screen all for free no subscription required download Beely now like and subscribe
0: Stephen Port would spend hours in a police interview room denying his crimes, refusing to accept that evidence of his online behaviour incriminated him in multiple murders. No, it, just me, look, if, uh, general form. it had taken 18 months before Port was arrested in connection with the death of four men.
5: Were you involved in administering any drugs or poisons or noxious substances to him?
0: no I don't know Mr drugs to anyone' we'll give drugs to
5: anyone
0: at first detectives refused to accept that there had even been murders but the sisters of Port's fourth victim Jack Taylor would not accept that their brother had died of an overdose as the investigators had said how could he have Jack did not do drugs
1: we asked the place um about the syringe that was found on Jack and it wasn't used. So you're telling us it wasn't used, but you're also telling us that he just sat there and injected himself and, and done an overdose.
0: Jack's was one of a series of bodies found in or near the ancient grounds of this church in Barking, North East London. Like a string of other young men, he had spent time in the home of Stephen Port, a man who disguised himself as he trapped his victims.
7: We know that Stephen uses the the dating apps available to the gay community extensively, Uh, but not just that. We know that he uses them with false identities.
0: Port rehearsed how he would kill, arranging a series of early hookups via the web.
2: He would vary which sites he visited. He is using another site called FitLads, and through that he meets a young Muslim man who'd never taken drugs or drunk alcohol in his entire life. The man is plied with poppers and says that he felt unconscious. And when he came round, Port gave him a, a drink, some clear liquid to drink, which he said was water. Uh, but he thought was perhaps something else. It again tasted slightly funny. Not only did the water taste a bit funny, but he felt a bit funny. He said he felt like he was partially paralyzed. And he realized that his underwear had been removed. Uh, Now, he didn't want to involve the police or to report this to anybody because he didn't know what his family would make of revealing his sexuality, which he hadn't.
0: As bad as the experience had been, the young man was lucky to escape. He may well have been the last of Port's visitors to leave his flat alive.
2: Just ten days after this encounter, Port books an escort. Uh, on a site called Sleepy Boys and he offers £800 pounds for a young 23-year-old man to sleep with him for the night.
0: The man was called Anthony Wargate,
2: a fashion student from Hull. The appointment made with Walgate by port was for the 17th, the night of the 17th of June 2014. What would be his fate?
0: Port described his version of events to Cody Lackey, an ex-con himself who befriended Port. In handwritten letters from his cell whilst awaiting trial, Stephen Port graphically told his pen pal of the role played by Chemsex Drugs at his flat embarking. He took this guy
5: back to his house. Um, he was preparing drinks and stuff like that. Um, he said that this person, uh, the, the first victim, was administering his own dosage of the drug. And then he had a funny turn, as uh, Stephen Port described it.
4: Port had met this guy for sex earlier that evening, had uh, spiked him or convinced him to take uh, a fatal dose of GHB, had sex with him. He'd become unconscious and, and, and died.
2: Two days later, on the 19th, Walgate is dead. Anthony Walgate's body is found propped up in a sitting position against the wall of the communal entrance of a block of flats embarking. It's the block of flats where Stephen Port lives.
4: He dumped him outside his house and then phoned the police when he clearly wasn't responding
8: the ambulance. or
4: the address of the emergency? Port, in his call to the emergency
0: services, claimed to have simply come across the tragic scene. Cook Street was
5: a young boy and I his not outside.
2: The Stephen Port tells the police that he's found him there, that he's found this young man and he thinks he must have collapsed through drugs or through some other medical calamity. Obviously, sure, it was the guilt... Um, of the man, because
5: anyone with uh, any modicum of humanity and stuff would have looked after that person and stayed with them. Um, but the fact that he ran away was an admission of guilt in my
0: eyes. But not in the eyes of the police. Initially, Anthony Wargate's death was not considered a murder. It was a chemsex-induced overdose called in by a man who'd simply stumbled on the victim. But a week after making the 999 call... Port was arrested for
2: lying. What's the explanation for this young man suddenly being found dead outside this block of flats? They do a few inquiries around it, and those inquiries will include looking at Anthony Walkate's phone-billing history and trying to find out what was he doing there, why was he embarking at all. They realise through the uh, Sleepy Boys website that he was in fact an escort, but not only that, he'd been booked for that night on the 17th of June, by Stephen Port to come to those flats. Stephen Port, the very man who's phoned them up and alerted them and said, I've just found this young man outside my block of flats uh, apparently collapsed.
0: The belief that the death of a young man was a byproduct of consensual sex dictated an inquiry which was not searching for
2: evidence of a killer's mistake. How the police viewed the possibilities of Anthony Walkate's death would have dictated in which way they investigated it and to what depth some of the investigation went. If they were looking at it as an unexplained death but not necessarily a homicide or a sex crime, then some of the sampling and some of the uh, scientific work that would have been done around Anthony's body would be different to that in a full-blown murder investigation. So it's possible that that is where evidence that could have tied Stephen Port to Anthony Walgate might have been missed. Indeed, inside Port's
0: flat there was a mass of evidence which might have incriminated him.
1: That should have been looked into more, especially when they knew that he'd lied and lied and lied. That that would have been enough to look into it, and had they had done that. And had looked at his computer and everything else, that they, we, we now know that they had everything, it wouldn't just be Jack's life that was saved.
2: We know he had searches on there for, for drug rape and drug porn, and things like that. What was on his phone? How many other contacts might they have found if they went through his account on Sleepy Boys and Grindr and Fit Lads and these other sites he was using? Something else would have been
0: uncovered. Port's video stash revealed much about his murder methods, his modus operandi.
7: We know that Stephen watched a lot of pornographic material where um, other men were being drugged and raped and abused, while drugged.
0: None of that was uncovered by
2: police after the death of Anthony Walgate. It's hard to be too harsh on people who are doing their best. But you do have to ask the question as to why nobody thought that Stephen Port merited further and wider investigation at that point.
0: An internal police investigation would later ask the same question. But for now, Port remained unsuspected of murder, able and willing to kill
4: again. Stephen Port's second victim was. A young gay man called Gabriel Cavari.
2: Gabriel Cavari was just 22 years old and he'd moved to London from Slovakia. And he started a a sort of relationship with Port. He lived with him in the flat in Barking for a short period. And during that period, Cavari was texting his friends saying, Stephen Port is not a nice guy. Nice or not, Port was in a consensual
0: relationship with the recently arrived Gabriel, a sexual one too. On August 28th, 70 days after the death of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Cavari was discovered dead. His body left in exactly the same position as Anthony's in St Margaret's Church graveyard, just a stone's throw
2: from Port's flat. Uh, He's got sunglasses on and his upper clothing has been pulled up to expose his midriff
0: the sunglasses were kept by police but not tested for DNA Port had successfully gambled on Gabriel's death being written off as another overdose he was growing in confidence
4: you know it's a secluded area but actually it's it's very close to the center of barking Um, you know just brazen really that he would you know, obviously, the first person he left outside his house. The second person he, you know, he, he took here not a long distance and just sort of left him. You know, this is somebody who doesn't think he's going to get caught or isn't thinking about it or doesn't care. Having lived a life without crime,
0: now aged 39, armed with the means to attract young men to his flat and to spike his victims with drugs, rendering them defenseless. Stephen Port had killed twice in three months, and the killing hadn't stopped.
7: We get this slightly delayed. Um initiation of his violent spree. But once it starts, he revels in the sense of of power, of autonomy, which he hasn't had up to this point. Uh, It's not something which is intrinsic to his nature, and it's something which has been denied him by, by his rejection. So the sense of power must have been intoxicating once the series has started.
0: Port, the killer, had left a trail of evidence suggesting he was a murderer, but was suspected at this point only of lying in a 999 call. Where was it, a fellow
8: outsider? Uh, Cook Street. What's your number? I don't know, I just... I didn't look... Uh, I think it was seven know. before. Yes, I was...
2: The upshot of this is, is that Stephen Port is still free to carry on his ac- his activities. And those activities included in the... Just a few weeks, the murder of at least another two young men.
0: He had made mistakes. But which one would lead police to investigate? Stephen Port. By August 2014, the bodies of Anthony Walgate and Gabriel Cavari had been found, apparently dead from a drugs overdose in or near this secluded graveyard.
2: What was going on? So so what what you've got now is you've got two young gay men found inexplicably dead with their clothing pulled up within 500 yards of each other uh, in the same part of London and within a few weeks of each other
0: and living just yards away from where the bodies are found, Stephen Port. Local journalist Ramsey Alwakeel would one day investigate Stephen Port's behaviour as emergency services had arrived at the scenes.
4: So he must have seen the body, uh, you know, being found and kind of... you know, he, I mean, he left the guy in public, so clearly he's not that concerned about somebody coming across it. You know, he's almost just sort of going, oh, well, you know... On to the next one.
7: So did you, did you have any involvement in the, uh, the death of the male
5: that we just spoke about a short while ago, it was Gabriel Cavari or Gabriel Klein? No, I
4: didn't It was odd for us, certainly, for there to be two deaths in the short period of time. They were both men in their 20s or 30s. We asked the police, as I think you would, if there was anything to be worried about, basically, if, if the public were, you know, at risk. The police
0: said no, but on September 18th, 2014, just 31 days after the body of Gabriel Kavari had been found, propped up against this wall, a third young
4: man, Daniel Whitworth, was found dead. You know, two deaths in sort of East London, it, it's, it does happen, so I think we weren't sort of panicked at that point. When it really started looking odd for us was when the third... Man died. And was found in the same churchyard.
7: And did you go with Daniel to meet people?
2: No, no I knew he was doing the same as I was. But I'd seen him at a party and we had a brief conversation with him about it. But I've never actually engaged with him outside of the place. Daniel Whitworth's body is found in the identical location to Gabriel Kovaric. Same churchyard, same wall, sitting up against the wall clothing pulled up identical to the other bodies
0: he was young gay and a user of dating sites the similarities were remarkable
2: but a piece of evidence would emerge that would prove crucial later on the difference being with Daniel Whitworth he had a suicide note or at least a note was found on his body in his left hand in the churchyard
0: In the letter, Daniel confessed to being involved with the death of Gabriel Cavari,
2: the second man found dead in the vicinity. And in this note, he said that the reason he committed suicide was that he felt guilty about Gabriel, who had had died while they were having sex, and he felt it was on his conscience that he had placed in the churchyard, and because he felt so bad about it, essentially he was committing suicide in the same place in the same way. And then just almost as a, as a PS, he said, please don't blame the guy that I was with last night. It was nothing to do with him. It's all on me.
0: The letter was actually written by Stephen Port. If the police had suspected foul play as the cause of the three deaths, Port might have been a suspect. Detectives could have compared his handwriting with that on the note and seen that they were the same. But they did not. Instead, it was assumed
2: to be a genuine suicide note. From the police perspective, while it ought to have mattered, while they ought easily to have been able to prove that this was a false trail, it was wonderful news because they not only had an explanation for Daniel Whitworth's death, But his explanation of his own death was dealing with the murder of Gabriel Cavari. And at a stroke, there were two dead bodies that were effectively explained away.
0: Port had got away with murder using a schoolboy trick.
7: The suicide note is remarkable in its naivety uh, and its childlike qualities.
0: But it worked. No DNA tests were carried out on the note.
2: Nobody really looked behind this note to try and see if it was genuine or not and Daniel Whitworth's case went to a coroner for an inquest and the coroner was quite particular in in, in asking the police officers what they had done to try to uh, establish the provenance of this suicide note and I think it was slightly embarrassing really because they said well we haven't really done anything it was just a note that we found on him and he's you know we've, we've taken it at face value
0: until further forensic and detective work was carried out on the letter catching Stephen Port would not be possible and it would be over a year before the letter was uncovered as a forgery The prevailing theory seemed to be that Daniel Whitworth was the latest man found at a gay meeting site, the churchyard, who had overdosed on relaxant drugs like GHB. His was not the latest in a series of murders because there had not been a series of murders in the estimation of the police at that stage. The press were told this was all a weird coincidence.
4: And I sort of thought, well, it's not that satisfying, but at least we've got an answer, which is, you know carry on as you were, no need to avoid the graveyard. There's no serial killer on the loose. But it turns out there was a serial killer on the loose.
0: In March 2015, Port stood trial for the offence that he'd been accused of a year earlier, perverting the course of justice. He had claimed not to know victim number one, Anthony Walgate, but detectives had later discovered that Anthony and Port had spent the night together before Walgate apparently overdosed from drug use. So Port had lied. He was sentenced to eight months in prison. He spent three months inside, during which time bodies stopped turning up at St Margaret's churchyard or the roads nearby. It was in September 2015 that Jack Taylor was out with friends at the Dagenham Trades Hall Club. At 10:30, he's seen arriving at the hall, and at 12:30 he leaves. After departing from the trades hall, Jack calls a minicab, checks in on a
2: dating app. Twenty five year old Jack Taylor communicates with Stephen Port on Grinder, and it's three in the morning. But notwithstanding that, he goes over to Barking to meet him. He heads for Cambridge Road in Barking
0: after he and Stephen Port had agreed to meet. Nobody was yet investigating them, looking for them, but Port was leaving digital footprints.
2: One of the messages that they exchanged on Grindr uh, was Port asking Taylor if he'd ever taken tea, by which Taylor assumed him to mean crystal meth. uh, And he said, no, I never have done, mate.
7: The dating apps allow people to pick partners. He has just used that to pick victims.
0: Shortly after three, Port is recorded on security cameras near Cambridge Road in Bocking Town Centre.
2: Port collects him at the railway station, meets him there and they go back to Port's flat. Port travels back to Cambridge Road and again is
0: captured on camera, this time with Jack Taylor. Jack could not possibly have known how much danger he was in.
2: Within 36 hours of this meeting, in the early hours of the morning... Jack Taylor was
4: found dead. So we got a police field through for what we now know was Jack Taylor, uh, Port's fourth victim, The body he was found uh, embarking. Not that different situation from the first three deaths. And I thought, you know, that's like what happened last year, you know, that's, that's a bit odd. Still unsuspected of being a killer, Stephen Port
0: has claimed victim number four. Will he be stopped before another young man is drugged and killed? What would it take to uncover the killer's mistake? For Stephen Port to be arrested for murder, police had to suspect him of involvement in the death of four young men. And in late 2015, they did not. Uncovering any mistake that would lead to his arrest and conviction would take a change of mind at the Metropolitan Police. Port's fourth victim and the determination of a family to get to the truth would become key to catching a killer. Jack, 25, was a forklift truck driver and very much loved by a family that lived just a few miles from Barking in Dagenham.
3: He was very passionate about family, always wanted to spend time with his family. His friends loved socialising um, just loved, loved being with his family and friends all the time. Just wanted to be a part of everything, didn't they? Yeah.
0: It came as no surprise to his sisters that Jack had been out on that Friday the 13th of September.
3: Jack was very
1: much the life and soul and he would get on with everybody, he'd be really sociable. He, he was, he was a really friendly person. Like, he was the sort of person, he walked in a room and he lit the room up. That, that was just the way he was.
0: Later that weekend, the news emerged. Jack has been found dead.
7: My might help if I show um, you a picture. I'll call this CRT. CRT. This is Jack Taylor. Do you recognise that, there? Hmm.
2: Taylor's body was found on the other side of the church wall at St Margaret's. He was propped up against the wall, sitting position, had his upper clothing pulled up to reveal his belly. Exactly the same as the other deaths in the area. In his pocket was found a a syringe and a small glass medicine bottle. This was reported to local police as a suspicious or unexplained death. Police attended and the conclusion they came to was that this death was probably self-inflicted by misuse of some sort of substances. Not something the Taylor
0: family were prepared to accept.
1: From what we were told, that there was something not right, we knew that, because Jack didn't take drugs.
0: The Taylors became crucial to the eventual investigation into Stephen Port. There was a range of reasons why the sisters were skeptical about what they'd been told as they investigated what evidence they knew of.
1: We asked the police, about the syringe that was found on Jack and it wasn't used. So you're telling us it wasn't used but you're also telling us that he just sat there and injected himself and and done an overdose.
0: Another reason for their scepticism, the location where Jack was found.
1: And the fact that he was where he was when we were taken to the area, that's not somewhere Jack would ever be.
0: It just didn't add up. Their own internet research revealed how Jack was the fourth young man to have been found in the vicinity of the churchyard.
1: So we was trying to find out, like, if there was anything else that had happened around that area, anything similar. So as we started to go back, obviously, that's when we came across the other boys.
4: With hindsight, how could it have been missed, especially knowing that they were all gay, that they were all young, they'd all used the same drug, they'd all had sex. It just seems like you know, links should have been drawn that weren't. Stephen
0: Port was going about his daily life throughout this time. He worked as a cook in a cafe in East London and he was still dating via gay sites and apps. The Taylor sisters were yet to suspect him but they were getting near to the truth.
1: It was just, well, it was heart-wrenching and we always knew that we, like, basically had, like, a big puzzle and as we were getting more and more information and we were putting it together we didn't know what the middle bit was.
0: The local newspaper embarking was equally sceptical. Four gay young men found dead, each just yards from the home of a man who had reported the first death. The evidence that foul play was involved, to some,
4: appeared clear. When you think that there was so much linking these deaths to each other and to Stephen Port, you have to think how smoking does a gun have to be?
0: Together, media and family turned to the police for explanations. Jack
2: Taylor's family, along with a local newspaper embarking, kept up pressure on the Metropolitan Police to look again at Jack's death. Other evidence struck the women.
0: Until now, police had not suggested that the deaths of the men were linked. It was when researching the inquest into the death of Daniel Whitworth, Port's third victim, in June 2015, that the remarkable similarity of the discoveries of the bodies struck the tailors as evidence that the deaths were linked.
1: We then followed the coroner's report back then of what had come out um, and basically it, it, it was nigh on the same as
0: Jack. The coroner into the death of Daniel Whitworth had also suggested more work should be done on the case. Momentum was building to look again at events surrounding
2: the deaths near the St Margaret's graveyard. And eventually their pressure had some sort of success in that somebody decided to get another officer who hadn't been involved before to have a look, not only at Jack Taylor's deaths, but at the three that had gone previously. And that officer was surprised, shocked by what was found and made the suggestion that, do you know what, all these four deaths look like, they're murders and they look like they're linked. And that was the point where the alarm is raised almost. The homicide team are involved and all of a sudden the investigation that these offences probably should have had from the very beginning starts to, to, to take place.
0: Investigating officers now decided to track Jack Taylor's movements on the night before he died and checked his phone. They uncovered that he'd agreed to meet a man embarking. They trawled through security camera images of the town. There he was. But who was he with?
4: And so there was a fleet appeal uh, for a man who'd been with this dead guy hours before he died
2: on the 13th of october 2015 the met issued a cctv image taken from barking station which showed jack taylor walking with a tall
4: blonde man i think about 24 hours passed uh, and stephen port was arrested on suspicion of four murders it was now that detectives
0: began a series of interviews with stephen port don't recognize His face.
7: So you don't recognise his
0: face? I do not know. The truth began to emerge. Taking the decision itself to consider the deaths as murder and Port as a suspect meant that any mistakes he had made might now be uncovered. The resultant publicity
2: generated even more evidence. After Port's arrest and charge, the media coverage of the events brought forward uh, a horde of people making allegations about Stephen Port. They included the young Muslim boy, and it was clear that Port had a settled method of what he liked to do and what he would do, and that was to contact men normally younger than him, normally considerably younger than him, on internet or apps... Uh, and get them to come to his flat where he would ply them with a drug with GHB predominantly and then also inject them with something to render them unconscious during which time he would rape them
7: he has thought through every detail of how he is going to make this happen Um, and he has used all the tools of our time at his disposal
0: tools like the internet and dating apps officers discover that Stephen Port had cancelled his Grinder account just hours after the death of Jack Taylor. Why would he do that unless he was hiding something? They discovered that he had used Grinder to contact Jack and others. The case against him was building. Whilst on remand, Port began his pen pal friendship with the ex-con Cody Lackey. The handwritten letters, unknown about by police, were revealing.
5: Stephen told me in his letters um, that he met this guy on Grinder. Uh, he invited him round to his. Um, they was both taking this um, drug, GHB, um, and he said that the guy knew what he was doing. He was administering his own amount of the drug. Then apparently he took a funny turn. Uh, Stephen took him outside. Um, I think he then he rang the emergency services.
8: The ambulance, what the address of the emergency?
4: Cook Street. It was a young boy.
5: Know. Said that he found this body outside, um, but then he put the phone down when he was when he was questioned by the um, operator from the emergency services.
8: The telephone you
5: you're calling from. Hello. He then rang him back. Stephen so put the phone down again, and then when the ambulance and police turned up, uh, he scarpered inside.
0: Port was revealing his version of events about Anthony Walgate. That's not all he gave away in the letters. He was candid about the effects of muscle relaxant drugs. And he seemed to know an awful lot. He said you can't intentionally kill someone with GHB
5: and stuff because the taste, they would be able to taste it and stuff because it had quite a sour, like distinctive taste
0: and stuff. But uh, I think he
5: was trying to convince himself more than he was trying to convince me and stuff.
0: The odd written relationship continued whilst Port was behind bars. In one letter, Port says that all of the men had died because they did not know the dangers of GHB. He even offered to give lectures about the subject when he was released. He said Port was not a killer. He was sticking to a line of defense that even some police officers had believed as the bodies turned up that gay men were dying because of drugs overdoses, not because of murder. He said he wanted to become an anti-drug advocate and stuff. He wanted to speak out at
5: schools, colleges, universities, uh, and in the media and stuff. He wanted to get himself a media profile, um, speaking out against drugs and stuff and the dangers of drugs and highlighting, um, like, um, recreational drugs, if you will.
0: Through his pen pal, Porter later perfected his defence. The young man had been inexperienced in how much drugs they should take. They'd overdosed and died. Port had not been responsible for their deaths, which had followed consensual sex. This was not going to be a straightforward case for detectives to gain a guilty verdict.
7: Might help if I show um, you a picture. I'll call this a CRT 2. This is Jack Taylor. Do you recognize that
0: It was during the inquest into one of Port's victims, Daniel Whitworth, that the first breakthrough occurred. The coroner felt that the Daniel Whitworth suicide note lacked authenticity and should be subject to more forensic analysis. One section did not ring true. Don't blame the man I was with last night.
3: They told us repeatedly that they had checked it, DNA checked it, sampled it, everything had been done. And that... There was no reason for us to look into that. We was also told that all the deaths were not connected, which obviously is not true, because the suicide letter, in the suicide letter, stated that Daniel had su- supposedly killed Gabrielle, So it was connected. We were told there was no connection.
0: The coroner thought the same. She returned an open verdict. An open verdict means the death was suspicious, but there was no clear cause. Would the relevance of the suicide note expose what really had happened around and in St Margaret's churchyard? Were Stephen Port's mistakes about to be uncovered? The suicide note allegedly left by daniel whitworth victim number three claims that daniel had been with gabriel cavari victim number
2: two on the night that he had died in this note he expressed not only his sorrow for committing suicide and upsetting his family and his friends by that but saying that the trigger for it was the fact that gabriel had died
0: The note also urged people not to blame the man who Daniel had been with the night before.
2: Who was that man? Stephen Port. The apparent suicide note, this was finally submitted to a handwriting expert. The handwriting expert looked at other things written by Stephen Port, looked at other things written by Daniel Whitworth, and concluded that that suicide note was not written by Daniel Whitworth the handwriting matched exactly that of Stephen Port. And more evidence would emerge when other tests were carried out on the note. And an expert made a statement to to say that, conclusively, the paper that was used for the suicide note for Daniel Whitworth was the same as the paper on which Stephen Port had written his other letters. And crucially and clinchingly... Stephen Ports' DNA was found on Daniel Whitworth's suicide note. The
0: sunglasses found by the body of another victim were tested for DNA. Sure enough, Ports was on them. Still, he protested his innocence.
5: I mean, Stephen, did you, did you write this letter? Yeah, CRT 11. No, I didn't. The, the photos of it it's found with Daniel.
0: Yet more evidence, a blue sheet which had come from Port's bedroom and found over a victim's body.
2: Not only was Stephen Paul's DNA found on the Daniel Whitworth alleged suicide note, but Whitworth was found wrapped in a blue sheet, or the blue sheet with him, and Stephen Paul's DNA was also found on that sheet. Are you us the truth, Stephen? I'm telling you the truth, yes. Father
0: Yes. It had taken forensic science to prove that the four deaths were linked and that Port had been with all of them, something he tried to cover up with a fake letter. It was the handwriting on that letter which was his undoing. When seen side by side with Cody Lackey's, which the police did not have available to them when investigating, the similarities are particularly pronounced on the letter P. I
2: mean, the, the, the fact is, yes, it, it's, it's in theory... This was a wonderful plan, Uh, and if it had been properly executed and properly, um, you know, he'd taken account of DNA and of handwriting comparisons and all the things that can be done with handwritten notes, if that was all dealt with, this was genius. This was the stroke of a master criminal.
0: But Port was no master criminal. His other mistakes were exposed one
2: by one. Stephen Port's mobile phone was... uh, examined during the investigation, and it was found to contain no fewer than 83 separate video clips of pornographic material, many of which involved a man apparently having sex with another man who was unconscious. It was quite clear that this was something that represented Port's main sexual interest. The evidence of his internet habits had revealed the full
0: extent to Port's modus operandi. He would lure the men, often in an online disguise to his flat, having met them via an app, and then spike their drinks with drugs.
7: Particularly within the gay community, relationships are formed through the use of the, the apps. It's a ready selection. Um, rather than emerging organically, and really what if you think about it what Stephen Port has done in selecting his victims is simply an extension of this he's chosen his victims in the way that in the 21st century people choose their uh, partners their relationships
0: and then there was the discovery of CCTV linking Port with his fourth victim Jack Taylor
4: which first exposed the serial killer to investigation and suddenly that piece that we'd written a year before saying don't worry guys there isn't a serial killer on the loose apparently just felt you know almost there's a, a tragic irony to it because it was wrong
0: in november 2016 port was found guilty of the murder of four men Writing this letter was the killer's mistake, which led to his conviction, and a sentence which means he will join the small group of serial killers to have received a whole life sentence. Stephen Port will never be released.
5: It's just a sexual predator in every which way, and um, unfortunately it resulted in in the deaths of four men.
1: I don't think you can put how much we miss him into words to be honest, I don't think he can any of us it's just um our worlds have just just been squashed he's a monster that that that's all he is is a monster he had he had no value for life and he didn't care what he did to boys and what he would do to people 's families by what he's done and Being in prison is just too good for him, to be honest, because he's took people's lives and he's destroyed our families for the rest of our lives.
0: Every investigation is like a jigsaw, each piece offering new evidence as a picture of a suspect emerges. But which one will reveal the killer's mistake?
6: I like Kent McGowan wants to kill you. He's going to kill you. He just managed to do it under the color of law. I guess this one.
8: 911 County, what's your emergency? They are trying to break into my house, please. So Kent McGowan, he was charming. He was likable. He was obsessed with being popular. Uh,
7: And who is Joseph Kent McGowan? Who are you?
8: him as a person well an innocent man that's for sure this was his chance his chance at being that super cop that he always wanted oh, please. What about yeah.
9: They're just okay. Okay. i said drop the gun drop the gun Ma'am?
0: it looked like a clear case of self-defense so to send officer kent McGowan to prison investigators would have to uncover a killer's mistake Old Oaks, Harris County, Houston. This road was the scene of a violent death. Homicide is not what you'd expect here. People are wealthy enough to pay for police cars to patrol the neighborhood.
8: This way you have a fully certified Texas peace officer with full arrest powers that can conduct traffic stops, arrest people and has the full authority to truly protect you in that neighborhood. It's an excellent concept.
10: These are the guys driving around providing a visible police presence, particularly in a very affluent suburb like Old Oaks.
0: Guys like Officer Kent McGowan. He sees himself as more than a patrol car policeman, issuing tickets and keeping an eye on big houses. He is someone who has spent his life dressing to be an authority. He has ambitions. He wants to be a celebrated detective.
10: We know Kent McGowan is a man who likes to wear a uniform. He was in the Air Force. When he leaves, he begins volunteering as a police officer.
0: It's not often that the Texas Correctional Facility authorities and the prisoners inside agree to a TV interview. Joseph Kent McGowan did. A career cop. This is not where he saw himself ending up.
9: To be honest with you, when I was a little boy, I despised bullies, thieves and liars. I always had, to, as a little kid, was, had this issue with bad guys. And I just kind of, that was the trail which life led me. And that's, that's thats why I went to the Air Force when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, 17. Because that was about the, um, the youngest place you could be a policeman.
0: Officer McGowan's beat, hold Oaks. Not the sort of area which will yield him the opportunity to excel to be a hero cop.
8: He has the S on his chest as if he's Superman, the cop's cop.
0: Brian Harris spent decades as a top homicide detective in Texas. He knows how policing works and the level of experience that an officer is expected to have
8: for each assignment. He was assigned what's called a contract, his beat, basically. Very quiet. Not much police action is going to take place there, but he is assigned there until he gets enough time on and seniority where he can put in for another assignment, whether it's investigations or to a more crime-ridden area. But that's the area where he's there, patrolling. And there's not much crime that happens in that neighborhood.
0: So, little chance for Officer McGowan to make his name until the events of a humid weekend in Houston take unexpected turns.
8: Deputy McGowan is patrolling this relatively quiet neighborhood, but at the same time, his ear is to the ground. He probably knows okay, who are the little troublemakers, who are the ones that get in trouble, etc.
0: Officer McGowan pulls over a young man called <coughs> Michael Schaefer.
8: And so he makes a traffic stop, and the kid is scared.
0: The patrol officer senses an opportunity to get himself an informer. If Michael can tell McGowan something useful, he'll let him go.
8: And he starts inquiring. I hear there's stolen guns going around. Michael, nervous,
0: anxious to avoid getting in trouble with the police, offers to help the officer. Kent McGowan now has his informant. Every good officer needs an informant on the streets,
8: even in leafy old oaks. So now you have Michael. He's just a kid, teenager, barely an adult. In the laws of Texas but what can Michael tell officer McGowan as an informer he feels pressured so he go turns to his friend hey do you know where I can get a gun and Jason gets him a gun
0: Jason Aguilar 17 is no stranger to trouble
8: Jason's no angel he's not a choir boy
0: McGowan arrests Jason, and here's a story which then escalates what had been an arrest for a traffic misdemeanor into something completely different.
9: Jason Aguilar told me when we were working, he said, hey, I can buy you a fully automatic laser-sided Uzi for $3,000. At the time, a bunch of automatic weapons were showing up in that area, some drive-bys and whatever. And he told me for three grand, he could sell me a uh, fully automatic, which some guys he knows.
0: Officer McGowan's case is getting bigger. Jason is going to spend the night in a cell. Earlier, his mother, a lady called Susan White, had left this note. Call me if you need me. I love you. Her mother's love was about to show itself. She heads to the police station.
9: When she comes over there, she goes, I need to talk to my son, whatever. I say, hey, he's going to jail. He'll be able to call you in a few hours. She was clearly intoxicated.
0: Officer McGowan wasn't about to negotiate. It looked to him like Jason could be part of a gun runner's ring providing Houston's underworld with Uzis. It's an opportunity for recognition and potential promotion. And it had fallen right into Officer McGowan's lap.
8: What better way than to stand out to your supervisors, to stand out to the sheriff or whoever are your bosses than to be this super cop, this great cop, or even to the neighbors and the people you serve in that community, to be the one that's crushing crime, crime that they didn't even know existed in their neighborhood.
10: He tells his colleagues, I've got evidence here of a gun cartel operating in this suburb. I'm going to crack it.
0: The day after Kent McGowan had arrested Jason, there was a further sinister development. He hears that Susan White had threatened Michael in phone calls between her and Michael's mother.
9: She starts saying, do you know Michael Schaefer? He's a snitch. Don't you know what happens to snitches? Don't you watch TV? And, and Houston snitches get killed. Those are the exact words. She told me she's an, a freaking nut, is what she said. She's a nut. She's crazy. And then I said, I said do you think that she's capable of killing your son or having her son killed? Yes, I do. And I said, we're gonna go ahead and pick her up on on a retaliation warrant. She said, good, get her off the street.
8: He interprets a general conversation as a specific threat, and then goes from people can get killed to you can get killed. In McGowan's mind, he now felt certain
6: that he should get an arrest warrant and fast. My name is Jim Mount. I was formerly employed as an assistant district attorney in Harris County, Texas, and I was one of the prosecutors who was involved in getting a warrant for Deputy McGowan. I prepared an affidavit in support of an arrest warrant for Susan White's arrest on a retaliation case. So he met me about 3 o'clock in the morning uh, at a division of the DA's office called Intake and he and I spoke and based on what he told me I prepared an affidavit that he swore to is true and correct.
0: A traffic misdemeanor had escalated to a crime involving gun running and even according to McGowan an underworld threat of retaliation.
6: He was absolutely certain that Susan White presented uh, a danger, an actual danger to the informant that had been used to buy what he said was an Uzi submachine gun
0: officer McGowan had waited a long time for this moment taking down the head of a gun running ring which was flooding Houston with Uzi submachine guns and who might be the leader of the gang someone superficially living the life of a homemaker in leafy old oaks Susan White
8: a sale of one single handgun suddenly becomes a big gun running organized crime, mafia type scenario where the don of the mafia is a middle-aged housewife.
0: Officer Kent McGowan was en route to the office of District Attorney Jim Mount He wanted an arrest warrant for Susan White, who he said had threatened the life of her son's friend, Michael Schaefer, a snitch who'd caused son Jason to be picked up by police. Informants in Houston, she told Michael's mother, don't live long
8: the initial district attorneys are going to say, yes, we will help you write this affidavit because this person is so dangerous. We cannot have people retaliating against our witnesses. We're not gonna allow that to happen in Harris County. He
6: told me that Susan White uh, was a person who was going to support her son and knew what he was doing And so, uh, I guess in his mind, she was also part of this sale of this machine gun. Um, He he never told me in great detail about why he thought she was such a bad person. It it was sort of conclusory. She's a bad person. You know, she's somebody that we got to get.
0: McGowan, a neighborhood patrol officer, wanted to be in at the arrest of the possible gunrunner, Susan White a woman masquerading as Miss Middle
9: America. So I went in after midnight, I'm talking about everything done. I went in, it was after midnight, I spoke to Jim Mount and he said, yeah, by the time we got the paperwork and all that done, it was like 3.30 or 4 o'clock.
6: He was adamant that he wanted to arrest her himself. Uh, Again, that's not unusual. Uh, So that in and of itself didn't make me think something was wrong
8: because not only now does he have Jason, the gun runner, now he's going to go after the big boss, the leader of this big gun running cartel that operates in an affluent neighborhood.
6: And I just told
8: him, look, you, you can't
6: get it done tonight. You can't get it done tonight. You're going to have to get it done later. And, and he seemed to be chafed about that. He was a little upset about that, and he said he was going to call a sergeant and then figure something out. But he was very, very clear that he was going to be the one to arrest her. This is the arrest warrant Officer McGowan needed. He arranges for two deputy sheriffs to accompany
0: him to Amber Forest Drive, Old Oaks, home of Susan White and her son Jason, who is fast asleep upstairs. It's after midnight, August 25th. On arrival, he calls her to ask Susan to surrender. She makes no reply to him. She's already on the phone. She's called 911 to complain about people outside her door.
2: 911
9: County, what's your emergency? Officer McGowan didn't know she was making the call. And so I'm out there on the scene. We're knocking on the door for 15 minutes out there. Who's there? He, accompanied by
0: two colleagues, prepares for so-called dynamic entry, breaking down the door.
9: I've always done dynamic entry, run a warrant to keep this from happening, keep somebody from flushing their drugs, you know, grabbing a gun, hiding or whatever. But I figured being this wealthy lady, with the neighbor? I didn't know. It. I didn't know she was a nut.
0: At police headquarters, the nine one one call continues. Susan White has been transferred.
2: Oh. From the department. Go ahead, ma'am. My name
0: is Susan White. We have the transcript to clearly understand what Susan White said that night. She sounds confused. She was in a deep sleep when she heard men outside.
8: and I he's The door gets kicked in. What She's on the phone. She hangs up the phone.
0: McGowan and two other officers rush in. McGowan later says he
9: sees Susan White with a gun. I saw her go from right to left. So we had our weapons on, I look, and she's in the corner, she's holding the gun.
10: And he opens the bedroom door to be confronted by this woman who's holding a gun and pointing right at him.
9: Well, I came in, she had the, uh, the gun at waist level and she never said a word, never, Didn't say, she said nothing. She had a gun at waist level, and it's true, you do a mouse tunnel vision. I see the gun pointing right at me.
10: This woman, Susan White, what he believes is the ringleader of a gun cartel, and she's pointing a gun straight at him.
9: She was standing like this in the corner. In the in the bed. Was like the door was right here, and the door opened like this, and there was a on Chester drawers the T V and a converter box on it, if I recall. And then Show I, me what she looked like. huh.
7: Show
10: me what she looked
9: like. She was standing with a gun just like this.
10: He fears his life is in danger and that his deputy's life is in danger.
9: I saw her for maybe three seconds, I'm hollering at her three times, drop the gun, drop the gun.
10: She doesn't. She continues to point it at him.
9: I told her a second time she kinda of, she kind of turned and pointed right at me with the proverbial Mexican standoff. I'm about eleven feet away, I think it was. You know I told her a third time. When she does, this, uh, she had it like this. She squared at me. And she pulls a gun like this. And then, that's, and then put her finger on the trigger. And that's what I told her a third time. So
10: he fires.
0: Believing his own life and that of his two deputies is in danger, Officer Kent McGowan fires three times at Susan White.
9: First round struck her in the chest. And she started to go like this. The second round was behind it and hit, it went through the arm and stuck right in the chest.
0: Another bullet hit her in the head. She was dead. Brian Harris has heard the recording of the incident picked up via the 911 call made by Susan White.
8: What you hear on the tape, you hear the entry being made.
9: How many is there? I don't know. Please, what are they doing? okay.
0: He uses an old method of assessing how long it took to travel from banging down the door to the bedroom of Susan White. Six seconds.
8: 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005, 1,006. Susan is dead. She's been shot. By who? Deputy McGowan. Now, Susan had six seconds to live from the point that the door got kicked in to the time that Deputy McGowan sees her in her bedroom.
10: He's a hero. He's cracked a big case. It's been his ambition for years to do this. He's been telling people, one day I'm gonna I'm gonna break a really big case, and here he is. He's shot the leader of a gun cartel. She's dead.
9: I did what I had to do to save my life, the life of Deputy Rong and lawyer at that moment. That's what I did.
10: As far as Kent McGowan's concerned, he's done his job. He's a hero, case closed.
0: But McGowan had not told the whole truth. What was the killer's mistake? Yet to be uncovered. Today, the murder rate in Houston stands at around 250-year. In the early 90s, it was nearly double that. A northside, southside gangland feud accounted for many of that number. The death of Susan White, now a suspect in gun running, who had allegedly aimed a pistol at an officer, was not immediately big
8: news. Officer Kent McGowan had done what he had to do, no more. Deputy McGowan, right after the shooting, is freely talking to other people, about what he had to do, what he felt he had to do. He's creating this hero cop, how he saved his fellow deputies, how he saved his life, that it was this profile and courage of how he behaved, quote, under fire or potential of fire.
10: He goes back to the police office. He's very proud of what he's done. He's boasting about it even.
0: Officer McGowan's conscience was clear. Susan White had threatened to have one of his informants killed. An informant who had revealed that Susan's son, Jason, had sold him a gun. And according to Kent McGowan, Jason Aguilar had also revealed he could get an Uzi submachine gun for $3,000.
9: Yeah, that's what they were telling me, yes. I didn't know Susan White, so I know she's a nut or not. I'm going by what my informant said. I couldn't question him on a serious situation like that. I talked to Michael Michael Schaefer a number of times that night. Excuse me. And his mother, Jeannie Jakes. And they told me, yeah, that she's a nut. He was, that kid was terrified. He was calling me 911 911 the whole time.
0: But reading the statements given by colleagues, it's clear that the story does not add up. And Kent McGowan's post-shooting attitude was a concern too.
10: At first his colleagues are like, yeah, you've done a good thing, but they're like, you've just killed someone and it's a woman. That's not a normal reaction to, to killing someone, even if they were the ringleader of a gun cartel.
8: That's a big red flag. As a homicide detective, and I've investigated numerous officer-involved shootings, uh, from officers being killed to officers being involved in shootings, I have never, ever in 21 years had an officer that actually bragged about what they did. I have always seen officers that are fairly quiet. We make sure they get some counseling, some psychological counseling. It's a traumatic event. It's not natural for a human being to take another human being's life. Kent McGowan, his actions after the shooting, the things he said, huge red flag. What's wrong with this guy? Some colleague officers reported
0: another troubling detail of McGowan's post-incident behavior. He had asked for
8: the casings of the bullets that he'd fired when the autopsy was complete. And then what he requests of the detectives? the trophy, he actually asks for the shell casings from his shooting scene so he can use them on display. Who would do such a thing? It's twisted. It's scary to think that you have a law enforcement officer that would be out on the street that would want to almost as if it's a World War II ace where they put markings for every person they shot down. It's very disturbing, as a fellow law enforcement officer, that Kent McGowan would actually look at this as a trophy, the killing of a human being as a trophy.
0: Most murders involve killers who know their victims. More often than not, they're over relationship issues or money. As detectives evaluate evidence, they speak of breakthrough moments, the realization from one fact which emerges that a killer has made a mistake. From the moment that the Kent McGowan began to brag about his exemplary behaviour in protecting his fellow officers from the dangerous Susan White, his version of events began to unravel. Susan White was on nobody's radar as a gunrunner.
10: Apparently there's this big gun cartel in this affluent suburb of Houston. It's a woman. Um, she seems like a regular
8: mum. Being that this neighbourhood had little to no crime, most people would think is a great thing. But if you have a young officer that is trying to be this superhero, in their own mind, they can create a fantasy that's just not there. The kid at the corner street smoking a joint, that's a huge major drug trafficker attached to a cartel. Somebody is speeding, that's a possible stolen car for them. So they take what some would consider minor or nonviolent offenses, and they really blow it up. Now, if you take Kent McGowan's situation, you're talking about a sale of a gun, a handgun, and a sale of one single handgun suddenly becomes a big gun-running, organized crime, mafia-type scenario.
0: And then the reason McGowan had given for needing an arrest warrant began to crumble. Michael Schaefer's mother, Jeannie Jakes, 165 miles away in Austin, Texas, did confirm that the couple had spoken in general about the trouble that their sons had caused and that Michael might be better served not becoming a police informant.
8: But this was not a heated conversation between adversaries. Jason's mom calls Michael's mom. No different than two kids who get in a fight in a schoolyard and parents are going to talk to each other. I take it as a, as a conversation in generalities, not a specific threat. So you have two grown women talking to each other and, and Jason's mom reaches out and says, you know what, what is Michael crazy getting mixed up with this guy? I mean, you know, in the real world, people can get hurt. People have even died from doing stuff like that.
6: If if Deputy McGowan had simply told me that Susan White made a phone call to someone in another city and said informants in Houston don't live long, that by itself would have been completely insufficient for me to draft a warrant for him. No judge would have signed it, no prosecutor would have accepted a charge against her.
0: As for the suggestion that Uzi's submachine guns were part of that night's story, it simply wasn't true. As Kent McGowan gave evidence to investigators replaying events for them to assess what had happened, something else emerged. McGowan knew Susan White before that night's events, and she knew him well enough to be frightened that he was outside the door. So
9: you can get McGowan away from my house. Get McGowan away from my house. I
0: want to of my property. A transcript was prepared of what Susan White had said and soon it was confirmed she and McGowan had history.
10: Susan White says she first encountered Kent McGowan because he kept pulling her over for speeding tickets. She says what he was really doing was hitting on her.
0: Perhaps McGowan felt that sort of behavior was a perk of wearing the uniform.
8: Kent McGowan is somebody that isn't going to sit real well with the term no. And so when he's out in that neighborhood, he's wearing that uniform. And there's a couple of things you need to remind yourself when you're a young cop. Are you really that good looking? Suddenly you're wearing that uniform, you have all kinds of ladies and people hitting on you. Go back in plain clothes. You're really probably not that good looking. And are you really that smart? People twice your age now are asking you advice. You haven't been on earth that long to be that wise. But that uniform brings a lot of that. But that also sometimes can give a false sense of confidence. And I believe Kent fell into that category. And he had this single, beautiful, good-looking lady. Certainly why would she spurn his advances? When she says no, that's maybe perhaps her way of flirting with him. So because Kent McGowan couldn't accept the word no or didn't have enough common sense to see that she wasn't interested, he kept pursuing her and pursuing her.
0: He pursued her often enough for her to mention her concerns to one of his senior officers and to urge the operator at the end of her 911 call that night to send help.
7: Who's there? Okay, do you need a deputy out to your house? They are trying to break into my house, please.
8: And she's scared. She believes this guy's going to kill her. He has made unlawful entry into her home.
2: What are they doing? They're
0: just okay, okay.
8: All she knows in her head is Kent McGowan, and he's here to kill me.
0: Just days after the shooting of Susan White in an apparent justifiable act of self-defense, Kent McGowan had become a murder suspect. There were anomalies in his story. He had claimed the involvement of an Uzi submachine gun in his inquiries. Not true. To get an arrest warrant, he had claimed Susan White had suggested his informant might get killed. That claim appeared fanciful at best. And a big mistake made in his version of events. He had not told the district attorney that Susan White knew McGowan and had complained about him harassing her. I uh,
9: several complaints and need to, know to immediately.
0: McGowan denies that he knew Susan White, though he accepts she may have known him.
9: Well you know what? Maybe she was stalking me. I've been asked that.
0: What was true? Was Officer Joseph Kent McGowan a hero cop or a killer in a uniform? And if so. What was the mistake that would uncover him? Who was Kent McGowan? Investigators wanted to know more about their
8: 27-year-old colleague. Kent McGowan, I would describe as a gypsy cop somebody who was a narcissist, uh, somebody who truly believes that they themselves are that superhero.
0: McGowan kept losing his jobs. The records uncovered show a chequered career rap sheet.
10: He gets a job as a police officer. Things don't go well in the police force. He's accused of sexual harassment. People say he has violent tendencies. He's a shirker. He's quite lazy, actually, even though he says he wants, to, he wants to be a hero. He's heard making comments about women, disparaging comments about women. He loses his job as a police officer. He then volunteers to be a police officer. He loses that volunteer position. He volunteers again. He's desperate to keep on wearing that uniform and to keep having the power that that uniform provides.
0: Kent McGowan has always refuted the claims made about him by officers who uncovered his career records. This is what he told us about the times he got fired, like when a complaint was made about him by a female officer.
9: See that's not true. That's what happened. do we go ahead and explain?
0: Or when he was let go as a police volunteer after complaints from the public.
9: See that's not true either.
7: So then you went to precinct four. Right. And you were fired there after two months. See after that's not civil true either. Complaint?
9: See, that's not true either.
7: So you're saying the investigations against you at Houston Police Department, not true?
9: No, there was there was some minor investigations, that was it. And when it was, I think, three of them.
0: As for the sexual harassment claims, it was not just Susan White who'd leveled complaints against him. It was a former colleague, too. But McGowan maintains he was the victim.
9: There was some female officer who was stalking me back then, and she was crazy. I told her she needs to back off, and you know I talked to her after work.
10: There right already questions about his attitudes towards women he's previously been accused of sexual harassment and here he is shooting dead a woman who he has a history with
0: who detectives believed was clear they took McGowan's plausibility and charm as a cover-up for the
8: truth some of the most violent killers I dealt with in 21 years of investigating homicides were charming, We're so likable in that interview room. Uh, you wanted to like them, but I wasn't a fool. I knew that in a second they would kill me without even thinking twice. So Kent McGowan, he was charming, he was likable. He was obsessed with being popular. He was obsessed with being that super cop, and that's what made him so dangerous. He would do anything to portray himself as that superhero. Character evaluations are one thing.
0: If a jury was to convict Kent McGowan as a killer rather than believe he's a cop acting in self-defense, detectives needed more. They began to forensically analyze McGowan's portrayal of what went on during the six seconds from when he entered 3407 Amber Forest Drive and when he shot Susan White.
9: Well, I came in, she had the, uh, the gun at waist level. And she never said a word. Never. Didn't say, she said nothing. She had a gun at waist level, and it's true, You do I a mean, tunnel vision, I see the gun pointing right at me.
0: McGowan said in evidence that Susan White was standing by her bed, facing him, square on, and holding a gun in her right hand.
9: So I said, drop the gun, drop the gun.
7: She was facing you, square on.
9: Yeah, well, at first she was, yeah, she was like this. She had it like this pointed right at me. I said, I said, I said drop the gun, drop the gun. And anyway, I said the second time, she comes up and she points the gun with the proverbial Mexican standoff. And I saw the, she had the weapon in, next her finger was not on the trigger. Her finger was not on the trigger at that point. And that's what I was watching. The trigger, I knew if she put the, if she touches the trigger, I'm going to have to shoot her. I told her, I said, I told her a third time. I see her put her finger on the trigger, and I hollered a third time, drop the gun. Well, I see her squeezing the trigger, and I fired three rounds, and she falls. Anyway, she um, uh, she falls face down, and then Marong went underneath me and jumped on top of her. Cause we didn't know if she'd been hit or not. I mean, the room's full of smoke, the alarm's going off, and I'm on the radio calling for a supervisor and ambulance. Well, first thing we run, run up to her, and um, and she was on her right on the left side, and the gun was still in her right hand.
0: The gun was still in Susan's right hand. There's a big problem for Officer
8: McGowan at this point in his evidence. Susan was a lefty. I venture to say that Kent McGowan didn't know that.
10: But Susan White was left-handed. Why would she be holding her gun in her right hand?
8: And if you're lefty, you're going to have, if you were to follow Deputy McGowan's story, you would have the gun in your primary hand. For the most part, you would have it in your left hand when you look at the angle of the bullets, the wounds on her body, it doesn't match the scenario of somebody holding a gun in their right hand. So right there, when you do the physical autopsy on someone, that also is a roadmap of what happened. So an autopsy is done on Susan and the angle of the bullet, the location of the wounds, they do not match whatsoever the scenario of Susan holding a gun in her right hand. The angle of the bullet and the
0: location of Susan White's injuries did not support McGowan's statements. If she was standing square onto McGowan, his shots should have entered her body in a direct straight trajectory.
9: When she had the gun, when she was standing on she when I said drop the gun, drop the gun. That's what I told her. She goes like this and when she pulls it up, when she does that, th- she had it like this, just squared at me. And she pulls a gun like this, and then, that's, and then put her finger on the trigger, and that's what I told her a third time.
8: If you listen to Deputy McGowan, they have guns pointed at each other. It's a standoff. He had to fire before she fired first, and the guns were leveled right directly at each other. However, Susan's wounds on her body, the wounds going from right to left, that's an indication she's turning. maybe hanging up the phone turning what or whatever's happening but she's in a turning motion and the way the angles of the of the wounds are the way the angle of the bullet to her head is that angle that autopsy that's a roadmap.
10: when they do the bullet analysis what they find is that the bullets there's strong evidence the bullets entered the side of her face and the side of her body that's completely at odds with what mcgowan is saying
8: That is not consistent with the deputy's story that they were face-to-face, guns pointed directly at each other. You see, the wounds itself, that physical autopsy, totally disputes what Deputy McGowan states.
0: District Attorney Jim Mount was part of the system that issued the arrest warrant, so
6: allowing McGowan the chance to shoot dead Susan White now what I believe happened is that I was giving him permission to go into her house and kill her he is
0: now certain that he would have found a way to kill her with or without the cover of a warrant nevertheless that night would have been different if officer McGowan had not had this crucial piece of paper
6: clearly he wanted to be able to arrest her to go into her house have a legal basis to go into her house and and that's what I provided him uh, and, and what a judge provided him. Uh, that's, you know, that's why I say if 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 a guy like Kent McGowan wants to kill you, he's going to kill you. He just managed to do it under the color of law.
0: He identified himself as police. Yeah, but that, they were. I was in my bedroom, my bedroom sleeping, and
2: there was somebody looking through my window. They, they said, "This is the police."
8: Who's breaking into your
0: house? I don't know. They say they are detectives. I can't detectives. I'm one of them. How um, many is there? I don't know. they please. What are they doing? They're just
8: broken. Okay. okay. Kent McGowan was his own worst enemy. Loose lips sink ships. He wanted to be that super cop, so he brags about what he does. He perhaps fabricates... A, in his own mind, creating this huge scenario of what took place in the shooting and the gun running, how he got this really bad person. And he's this super cop. The fact of the trophy bullets raised suspicion. Raised suspicion more than what an autopsy would do. So now you have an autopsy where the initial investigators are at the scene. They're observing his behavior. They hear about some of the comments he makes bells and whistles start going off. Now they look at the autopsy. They are comparing the trajectory of the bullets on Susan's body to the statement that Kent McGowan makes, which causes them to go back and look at the affidavit. Wait a minute. This affidavit says a whole bunch of stuff and the scene is not telling us that. This is just a homeowner Perhaps with a gun in their own house, like so many other Texans or Houstonians have, this is not some major gun runner. As a prosecutor,
6: when you have police officers come into your office in the middle of the night and tell you, hey, I need you to write me an arrest warrant for someone, you have to believe what they tell you. You have to take it as the truth. Otherwise, the system grinds to a halt. So not knowing Deputy McGowan, I believed that he was going to tell me the truth, and I relied on what he told me turns out that it wasn't.
0: McGowan was found guilty by a Texas jury. An appeal based on a
6: technicality was granted,
0: but he was found guilty again.
6: But you know, in retrospect, he got convicted twice. How can anyone think that he really is not guilty? I mean, seriously. So
0: what was the key turning point that led to the charges of murder leveled against Kent McGowan? What was the killer's mistake? For Brian Harris, it was not a what, but a who.
8: Kent McGowan himself. Kent McGowan's biggest mistake was thinking that he had the character and the ability to wear the badge on his chest. That man never should have been a law enforcement officer.
6: With 2020 hindsight, it's pretty clear to me that this is a guy who probably should never have been a police officer, should never have been in a position to run an arrest warrant on someone who he apparently had a personal grudge against.
8: When you wear that badge, you represent. That's why it's called a shield. It's a shield to protect others. It's a shield of honor. It's a shield of integrity. It's a shield of service. You take an oath to lay your life down for others, to serve other people. Kent McGowan's oath was to himself. He wore that badge to serve himself, to glorify himself. His biggest mistake was thinking he truly could be a police officer he
6: was a crook with a badge is how i look at it
0: Kent mcgowan was not given a mandatory life sentence he is due for release in 2022 he still maintains his version of events that night is true
9: i've got to i've got to go i know you gotta go and i appreciate it okay thank you hey i'm innocent get Dollar wants the truth. I'm Just not I'm truth.
10: not done. I'm still working.
9: Uh, I'm trusting okay. you. Bye bye. Hey, how do you we'll give this the back, mic- back here? Mm-hmm.